LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Douglas Carswell MP who joins us to discuss his new book, The End of Politics and the Birth of iDemocracy. The West is in crisis. Governments have grown too big, living beyond their means and ours. The true cost of extra officialdom has been concealed. Parasitical politicians have been hopeless at holding to account the elites who now preside over us. As a result, Western nations are mired in debt and chronically misgoverned. Should we despair? In the end of politics and the birth of a democracy, Douglas Carswell argues that we should not. Precisely because the West's big government model is bust, things are going to have to change. The West is on the cusp of dramatic changes driven by the failure of her elites, technology and mathematics. At the precise moment that big government becomes unaffordable, the internet revolution makes it possible for us to do without it. Be optimistic. We are going to be able to manage without government and thrive. The old political and economic order is about to give way to something vastly better. Hello and welcome Douglas Carswell and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now Douglas, we're going to, today we're going to talk about your new book, which is The End of Politics and the Birth of IE Democracy. Uh, it's quite a uh, dramatic title. Perhaps you could give us just an overview um, of what you deal with and explain the, the, the overall concept of a-democracy? Well, I start off in the first part of the book by looking at the way that government in Western countries has grown. Government has grown so big, I argue that it's not just a, a case of government now living beyond the means of the rest of us to pay for it. Government has outgrown its capacity. It's, it's outgrown the ability to do things effectively and do them well. And I think perhaps worst of all, it's outgrown the ability for the rest of us to, to hold it to account. We have, if you like, a, a 21st century size system of government, and we're trying to hold it to account with a 19th century system of, of democracy. It doesn't work. And because those who, who now wield executive power are unaccountable, they tend to get things badly wrong, and, and mistakes happen, and they go uncorrected. So I, I argue that this has led to a, a crisis in politics, and I talk about the end of politics. What I mean by that is that how a person votes or how we in aggregate vote no longer really determines the decisions that are made uh, that affect our lives. Um, officials, um, whether they're setting interest rates or deciding on uh, where to put a local incinerator, they're simply not answerable to us the way that, that many people expect. And so... Politics has become a, 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 an empty husk. Of course, the elections still happen and the outward form of politics remains the same, but its meaning is, 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 is withered. 
So I, I then start to um, build an argument um, that, that says that not only is, is politics, um, um, you know, big government politics has become moribund, um, but it's unsustainable, and, and, and that, that's the bad news. The good news is that at the moment that big government, uh, the sort of West's big government model becomes unsustainable, um, along comes the digital revolution to the rescue. It, it means that we don't actually need big collective government decision-making um, the way that we're used to. Um, we can actually start to um, do collective decision-making, if you like, with, without the, the, the state. So um, although things are bad, I, I think things are going to get better because we're going to have to do with a lot less government and, and we're going to be able to manage with a lot less government. Um, so the digital revolution, I think, is, is the death knell for, for a lot of assumptions about the role of the state and um, the state's giantism in our lives. Now, the fact that the system is unsustainable, uh, the interlocking uh, big political and financial system was brought into sharp relief, of course, in 2008 with the financial crisis. Yep. Yep. And there, since then, the loss of faith in, in the political and financial establishment has continued apace. But yep. certainly if you listen to mainstream reporting and ask you know, a lot of average people in the street, despite all that disenchantment, there still seems to be a waiting for a return to business as usual. But you argue that that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I mean, still the political elite in Westminster talk as though the banking crisis in 2008, 9, 10, it's still carrying on. It's, it's, it's not actually resolved at all. Um, but they still talk as though it's a blip. Um, they haven't yet realized that it's uh, a, an existential threat to it. It's the end of um, a series of long-cherished assumptions, cherished by the political elite. It's an end, first of all, I think, to a system of candy floss banking, where you, you, you basically conjure credit out of thin air. I think it's also probably the beginning of the end of the post-Bretton Woods system of, of fiat money. It's an end to that insane system of economics um, that um, I think we used to call monetarism, which suggested that the way to run an economy was to conjure up cheap credit from nowhere. Um, sorry, um, monetarists would describe it as controlling the supply of money. Um, but, you know, it, it's really just sort of Keynesianism in, in slow motion. Um, for 30 or 40 years, we've had a succession of governments who claimed that, you know, they could manage the economy the way the Soviet Politburo once thought that it could manage Soviet industry. And, you know, the tools are different, but the uh, conceit is the same, and that is that a tiny elite could decide using uh, various levers, in this case it was uh, the supply of credit, they could engineer prosperity. Um, unfortunately, it now looks as if uh, decades of prosperity that they engineered were, were no such thing. It was uh, an artificial stimulus created by a glut, an artificial glut of, of credit, and it, it did something not just damaging. It, 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 the most harmful thing about it was that Western governments running their economies this way masked a, a decline in Western competitiveness as, as um, globalization and, and free trade meant that other economies started to, to take off the um, um, glut of, of cheap credit in the West masked our declining competitiveness and, and meant that um, it suited government, obviously, because they could, uh, um, you know, this glut of cheap credit created a short-term boom and they could harvest the, the tax um, that, that was generated, particularly from the financial services. Um, but but it, it's, it, unless you happen to be a big corporate banker or a, a government official, 
its long-term consequences have been very harmful. It's, it's left people in, in a lot of personal debt. It's left us uh, with a lot of public debt as taxpayers. And I, I, I think there's a recognition that um, many of the assumptions that we've, we've had about the economy over the past 30 or 40 years uh, are actually not, not as, as solid and sound as we thought they were. Uh, anyone who's read uh, popular books of recent years, such as uh, Squandered by David Craig or uh, John Lanchester's uh, Whoops, Why Everyone Owes Everyone Else and No One Can Pay, will understand that this pattern of government borrowing and spending and indeed the structure of the financial system itself means that it's basically mathematically impossible to address the deficits and debts in their own terms. Something has to change structurally, and you address that in your book also. Yep. Um, something's got to give, and it's not going to be the uh, the Chinese uh, creditors. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think um, when you reach a situation that many Western countries, particularly Britain, but you know also uh, Japan and United States and, and certainly some Euroland countries, but not all. When you when you reach the situation that they're in, um, the debt becomes unmanageable. And I, I, I'm not just talking about sort of Greece and Spain um, defaulting on their debts. I think the the debt has and will b- become unmanageable for, for for Britain and America and Japan. And I think we're living through the last days of a sort of a, a, a bond bubble when. You know, there's still a belief that you know governments are, are, are going to be able to manage, and, and they're not. And eventually, the bond bubble will burst, and a lot of people who are owed money will not get it. And you know, um, I think um, um, that the, the wiser public policymakers um, have already factored that in, and are beginning to uh, see, you know, what what will the world look like after that. Um, in Britain, I think it raises some intriguing questions. Um, I don't think it just means the the end of the idea of monopoly money, monopoly in both senses of the term, you know, uh, losing value as in the board game, and monopoly in the sense that we all have to live under the George Osborne pound. It's not just going to challenge assumptions about monopoly money. I think it's also going to raise a fundamental question. At the moment, the British state commissions about £30,000 worth of services for every family. When the bond bubble bursts and you know we wake up one morning and it's not just the rhetoric of deficit reduction um whoever's the chancellor is actually going to have to look us in the eye and say you know that, that there simply isn't uh, the money that we thought there was and i can't continue to print it or borrow it how how are we then going to get the state to you know um, deliver public services. Well, the only way we can do that is to see dramatic improvements in the efficiency of public administration. And the only way we can do that is to allow self-commissioning. So in, in effect, the, 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 the coming crisis, the coming mathematical numbers crisis, I think is going to force us to um, you know, uh, have a much smaller government and have the state relinquish control over uh, vast swathes of public service. That, that's not to say we're not going to have public services. It's just that um, instead of government running them, um, individual members of the public will have to have to commission their own their own share. We'll come back to that last point in a moment. Uh, but just to address the issue of this, these huge debts uh, held by you know governments, uh, all sorts of institutions, national and international companies, banks themselves, can this be actually be unwound? In a way, because we know that a lot of it is, you know, it's kind of funny money. It doesn't really exist in any form of tangible yeah. wealth. Can this be unwound in a way that doesn't actually cause a lot of devastation to a lot of people's lives who are not actually culpable in this? Well, I'm, I'm beginning to doubt that it can. I mean, I, 
when when in 2007 2008 the banking crisis first came along i i did everything i could and voted against every bank bailout i i could because i could see at the time that we were in effect converting a a bank debt crisis into a sovereign debt crisis but the reason i mean you know you don't need to be an economic expert to realize that you can't really unwind uh, the, the 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 debt crisis just just look at two bold figures what is the growth of gdp in the countries with sovereign debt and public debt problems uh, you know how much are they growing by and how much is their debt growing by in Britain, GDP growth in the five years of this parliament will, if we're lucky, be what, four five percent maximum at the moment. You know, it's 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 so far halfway through the parliament, the economy hasn't grown at all, uh, net. But you know, say best case scenario, it's four five percent. Public debt during that five year period will have grown um, roughly doubled. Um, so you know, uh, those are the only two figures you really need to focus on when looking at sovereign debt crises, how much is public debt growing by and how much is the uh, economy growing by. And if the public debt continues to grow faster than the rate of the economy, then, you know, go do the maths. Um, if, if, you know, it, it would be exactly the same if a householder had a credit card bill. Eventually, um, when, you know, you, you have a runaway debt situation and the debt is growing faster than, than um, the, the interest on the debt is growing faster than um, any increase in income. Um, unless you have a, a, a default of some kind, um, you're, you're never going to escape, and that there will be some sort of default of some kind. Now, the ideas uh, presented in your book, they, they cut to the, the very heart of what the purpose of government is, and you're arguing that as a vehicle to organise human affairs uh, through having grand designs for everything, this is basically not, not fundamentally not a good idea. And I have to say, when I think about, when you mention grand designs in the book, the first thing it sprung to mind was the image of Tony Blair standing up and talking about a vision for Britain. And when he did that, I remember saying, we don't want a vision from you for Britain or my life or my family. You know, you should take delivery of and sort and count paper clips. You are an administrator. You know, there's nothing that terrifies me more than when I hear a politician talking about UK PLC. Since when did I become part of some corporatist uh, uh, dream or should I say nightmare? I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's interesting, though, isn't it, how throughout this country's history and, and in, in fact, throughout most Western countries' history, we, we've had the tyranny of what you might call the, the, the blueprint, that where you get a tiny elite and they get it into their heads that society and, and human, social and economic affairs should be molded according to their idea of what works. And, you know, they'll be quick to give you the justification, um, but, you know, somehow the blueprint always involves them being in charge. Um, I, I think something rather interesting is happening with the digital revolution. I, I, I think th this fundamental driver behind statism, which is that, you know, the presumption that an elite knows best, is itself um, crumbling. The, the internet is a, a sprawling network of organic design. It, it has no central directing authority, and, and yet it allows incredible sort of collective endeavor and, and, and crowdsourcing of wisdom and judgment. It makes possible a much more sort of Hayekin type of society. Um, you know, we're used to the sort of Cartesian presumption behind the elite that, you know, their blueprint, whether it's a socialist blueprint or a, 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 a you know, a, a, a so-called free market Thatcherite blueprint, that they're always keen to impose their blueprint. 
What I think significant about the internet is it opens up the possibility that those who advocate that there should be no blueprint go from being a sort of marginal uh, voice um, to becoming mainstream. Um, why, why have a blueprint at all? Why not organize society organically and spontaneously on the basis of, of what works rather than according to the design of, of an elite? Again and again and again, when the elite has tried to impose their vision of what works, whether it's building tower blocks in South London or, or you know, giving us all um, or, or millions of Europeans a common European currency, you know, they, they've imposed disaster on society. Far better to have a society that is not organised according to the blueprints of an elite. I, I think what used to be the, if you like, a sort of fantasy for, for libertarians. Um, is becoming mainstream. You, you can do collectivism without the elite. Yes, I mean, a lot of, um, just to remind listeners again, your book, The End of Politics and the Birth of a Democracy, a lot of the ideas in there uh, were somewhat familiar to me through reading about a system known as anarcho-capitalism. And uh, I was reading some comments online, appropriately enough, uh, today regarding your new book. And um, there was a mainstream pundit who said you had something of an anarchist about you. <laughs> if they work for the BBC, I'd take that as a compliment. No, I mean, um, on, on a serious note, I, I wouldn't describe myself as an anarchist. Um, I, I am a libertarian, and I'm, I'm proud to call myself a libertarian. And I think libertarianism can be immensely popular. I think when I stood for election, um, uh, you know, two times, and I, I've stood for election three times, the, the first time I was standing against Tony Blair, and I, I'm afraid to say I didn't win, but the last two times when I stood for election, I made it very, very, very clear um, that I'm in politics because I want less government, and I'm not standing for election in order to become part of government, and that my f fundamental political belief is that people should be uh, free to live their lives as, as they wish. And I, I actually think that that's an incredibly outside the Westminster bubble. That's an incredibly popular view, and it's becoming more popular. We, we live in a world increasingly where people are familiar with the idea of self-selection. You know, my, my grandparents' generation grew up in a country where literally food was rationed, clothes were rationed, um, and they were perhaps not familiar with, with um, the, the freedom and the choices that a new generation takes for granted. I grew up in a world where you know, the music I listened to was decided for me by remote BBC producers. And you know, we now live in a world where people can choose their own playlist. People have far more choice over the trivial things and, 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 and entertainment and leisure. So I think that the, the effect of this culturally is to create a zeitgeist where the expectation becomes that you, you should have self-selection. And if you can have self-selection over trivial things like the music you listen to, why on earth can't you have more say over the really important things like how your child is educated? So, you know, we're moving from a world where people were prepared to stand in line and wait and do what officialdom told them to a world where people are just simply not prepared to stand in line and wait. And, you know, they look at what the state is doing and they say, hang on, how can I have a supermarket that's open 24 hours a day, um, seven days a week in my neighborhood? But when it comes to healthcare, I, I, I have to ring back next Tuesday and hope that the GP can see me. How can, how, how can it be right that you know, we have a, a public service provision that treats me as, as a, a, you know, a nuisance? And I, I think increasingly we're seeing a cultural shift in this country brought about because of the digital revolution and the internet that, that, that means that people are just simply not prepared to have politicians who, who, who pretend that they can do everything for them. So I think, I think you know, if you're a, 
a, a sensible libertarian and you argue your points properly, I think there's a very strong vein of opinion out there, um, regardless of party politics, that, that actually you know, supports candidates who, 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 are, who are basically libertarian, whether from a, a libertarian left or a libertarian right perspective. Yeah, look, I, I think fundamentally most people don't want to control other people's lives, and the people who do tend to want to control other people's lives are those least fit to be doing so. Yeah. And I think we, we saw the phenomenon that you just referred to with Ron Paul in the US, that when you actually put these ideas in front of people, they go, wow, this is what I've been looking for. You know, because one of the reasons we have an electoral sort of crisis um, in lots of Western democracies, particularly in the UK, is because on policy, you can barely get a cigarette paper between the major parties. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think you're right. I think there's a, a complete lack of authenticity in the political system. People see the politicians as recycling and regurgitating the same script. And, and fundamentally, often when someone's standing for election in this country, they're not really saying this is what I believe in. They're saying this is the party line and, and people don't want to hear that. People want to know what is it that you, the person, believe in. And so I, 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 I think there's a really strong mood out there that is, is you know, it's not anarchic, but it's, it's strongly libertarian and it wants a different kind of politics and it wants politicians who say, you know, don't, don't vote for me because I'm going to promise to fix everything. Vote for me because I'm going to make sure that the parasitical elite stop leeching off you and that your share of taxpayer money you will have control over and you know we'll keep government small and off your backs and i i know that smart opinion in westminster says that you know libertarian views are minority views i i've spoken to an awful lot of people who i would describe as small c conservatives but when 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 it comes to when it comes to wanting change they've actually got a streak of a pretty strong libertarian radicalism in them well, actually, um, I can't remember which BBC show it was, whether it was uh, any questions or question time. You could probably tell me that you were on the panel on this occasion. And I actually contacted the BBC afterwards to, to comment on this. So what a difference it makes when you've got a human being instead of a stuffed suit on your panel. <laughs> I didn't get any reply, but I wanted to register that, that when they do occasionally get people on who just can, can say what they think, um, it makes such a difference to debate. It, it, it's very kind of you to say so. Um, I mean, I, 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 I am an optimist, and although my book in the first part talks about doom and gloom and how awful, you know, how, how incompetent our political elites are and how we're bankrupt, um, the real message of my book is actually in the second part when it's cheer up, despite the awfulness of our politicians, in fact, because of their awfulness and because they bankrupted us, we're going to have to change. And technology is going to allow us to do a whole load of stuff without them. I mean, just take, for example, I don't know how many of your listeners will, you know, have, have children, but since I became a parent, the most important thing in my life, irrespective of anything, is, is my child. And I, I, I find it absurd and it makes me angry that I, at the moment, have almost no say over certain things about my child's education which are incredibly important to me and I'm expected to stand in line and wait. You know, how can it be right that I can build up my own playlist on Spotify, I can as a programmer in chief um, on, on my iPad uh, provide a whole range of, of, of television entertainment for my, for my daughter but I can't be allowed to express views about uh, 
preferences that I may have as to how my child should be educated. It's an absurd system. We need to get, get out of this stand in line and wait mentality. It's not the 1950s anymore. We don't have rationing. So why on earth is government rationing access to things like health and education? We should give people control. Ironically, one of the things that, that I come up against, uh, if you're you know, talking to someone in a, you know, down the pub or in the supermarket and something your know, government uh, comes up, one of the things they'll say in response to what you've just described, scaling things back and choices, oh, but only the government can afford to do this. We couldn't, as people, yep. couldn't afford to do this. But of course, yep. that's a bizarre uh, incident of turning things, yep. situation on its head. I, I, I think when every, I mean, I, I've had first-hand experience of this. Um, I've had a lot of parents and mums and dads who've got children with special needs. And, for example, some of them have had great difficulty in getting a speech therapist. And when they look at what it would cost them to privately pay for the speech therapist, they, 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 you know, they despair. But when you explain to them that actually the state has a pot of money, it's real money and it's there, um, being spent for their child, but not actually delivering the child the speech therapy they need, you know, they suddenly realize that actually if they had control over their child's pot of money, they would be able to make sure that the child got the special educational needs that it needs. Now, another objection is, is, you know, people don't know what good looks like. And, you know, people are, are somehow supposed to be too ignorant to, to, to know what's good for them. Now, obviously, you know, I, if, if, you know I, I don't know everything I could possibly need to know to decide on a curriculum for my child. Even the cleverest polymath at Cambridge University couldn't possibly know everything that you need to know to educate their child. By definition, we can only make a decision about how to educate our child by assembling a whole collective body of information. But the extraordinary thing about the internet, it, it, it allows you to bring together that information in, in a totally new way. Instead of gathering all the information on the minister's desk and deciding you know, here is a national curriculum and thou shalt teach according to this wisdom, the internet allows you not just to crowdsource information and analysis, but to crowdsource judgment. What I, what I, what I mean by that, you don't actually need to know a lot about maths to be able to select a maths course for your child because you could refer to tens of thousands of other parents who've made that decision for you. Uh, now, if you think that's far-fetched, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I went and bought a, a new electronic device in a shop, a very complicated piece of equipment. It would take me weeks to understand all its technical specifications, but I could buy my mobile phone because tens of thousands of other people in London had already had to make that decision. And, and because they had made that decision, there was, there was brand information, there was pricing information, and there were recommendations online. And by using that, I could make a very sophisticated choice about a complex piece of electronic equipment in five minutes. Um, if I had been making the decision in isolation, I, I would still be humming and hawing. Now, crowdsourcing uh, decision-making um, online is going to become ubiquitous in a way that we're only just beginning to understand. Yes, and in this regard, uh, in your book, you refer to the fact that we're, we've been trained to, to defer to a lot of so-called experts. Um, but when we examine some of their ideas and concepts and uh, recommendations more yep. closely, we see it's actually backed up by a lot of second-hand ideas and ideology yep. and that these people are not necessarily that intelligent. And worse, sometimes yep. if we saw it with the financial crisis, the people who bungle things are then turned to for the, uh, the answers. Absolutely. What I find so extraordinary is that so, so often when you analyse received expert wisdom, what you actually find are a series of assumptions 
uh, made by people who, in order to be regarded as an expert, have had to espouse those assumptions. So, you know, I can think of particular examples where key decisions were made over public policy by people who are unwilling to challenge the presumptions that they use to make those judgments because they you know, had a vested interest in a particular outcome, were never willing to allow and regarded as heretics those who, who, who questioned what they were saying. Now, take, for example, the ruinous decision by public policy officials in Washington, America, to use um, federal subsidies to uh, underpin Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in order to encourage more people to take out debt. Now, the assumption was that extended home ownership was socially beneficial, yet that theory was built on um, a flawed understanding of the correlation between home ownership and propensity to have a job and, and, and not be involved in crime. People looked at the data and they, they misunderstood and they thought that home ownership was a, a driver of social virtue. So they then started to use public money to encourage people who could not otherwise afford it to take on debt and buy property. The, the, the consequence of that was disastrous for millions of Americans who stretched themselves, were ruined financially. And you know, the, whole, the whole principle behind um, encouraging Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to extend home ownership, when you stop and look at it, was built on a flawed assumption that they had been looking at the data back to front. And yet they've been looking at the data back to front for 30 years. And because they were seen as experts, nobody asked the obvious questions. It's not just um, public policy disasters when it comes to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. In the book, I, I take a whole series of examples, some very local, some national, some regional, some international, where a, a tiny number of experts has clung closely to a set of disastrous public policy proposals uh, because they have, have built policy on, on a flawed assumption. And you know, because they're experts, no one's challenged them. Um, you know, if you, if you want um, a monument to the folly of experts, look no further than the European Union's project for a single currency. You know, all the experts in Europe said you know, it would create prosperity. Uh, the reality, as we know, is that it's consigned tens of millions of Europeans to a life of prosperity and high unemployment. Now, this is what happens when you leave it to an elite to make decisions on the basis of what they believe is clever. Now, elites are actually a lot less smart than people think. Yeah, and, and the EU, I mean, that's just the the ultimate example, I think, perhaps, of one of these grand designs, and it's now, of course, coming unstuck. It, it, the, the European Union is the epitome of, of you know, uh, trying to organize society by, by, by grand design. Um, and it's, 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 it's ruinous. I mean, you know, the grand designs know no boundaries. You know, having, having created a, a common policy for fisheries um, and destroyed fish stocks, no one has stopped and said, you know, perhaps, you know, grand design is not the way to manage these things. The grand design has got ever bigger, ever more ambitious. It now extends to, to, to farming, to uh, uh, banking, to, to the money, um, to social policy, to economic policy, to trade policy. And you know, every time they try another grand design, um, they, they, they replicate only failure and folly. Um, yeah, it, it, it is a disaster, and I think the European Union will, will go down in history as, as a, 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 a disastrous example of what happens when you try to arrange society according to technocratic expertise. When we discuss trying to scale back the, the reach and size of government, 
One of the thorny issues that always comes up is that of the welfare state. And in tandem with that, or related to that somewhat, is what we're seeing now in some in, in, in the US under Obama, certainly in this country in certain quarters and definitely within the EU that calls for greater government spending at this time in order to act as some sort of stimulus on the economy. It's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, if, if government spending money that it didn't have produced prosperity, Greece and Italy and Spain would be afloat on a sea of prosperity. It's extraordinary. I find it quite extraordinary that um, intelligent, rational people still believe that the answer to the Western economic malaise is more government and more government um, spending. The, the, the reality, though, is that, you know, you know, when David Cameron said um, when he came to office, we can't go on like this, um, the, the, the reality is again and again in Western, Western societies, governments are carrying on as though they can spend money that they don't have. And, you know, for all the talk of austerity, there's been remarkably little reduction in, in public expenditure. Um, I, I suspect, you know, it, it, it boils down to whether we have a soft landing or we wake up one morning and we're not that different from Greece. Um, I fear that the United States and Britain and Japan uh, may, may not be as, as far removed from Greece as, as, as they sometimes like to think they are. Well, just while you mentioned David Cameron, we'll just say for those listening globally, that's the head of the Conservative Party in the UK and currently Prime Minister, so quite important chap. You get a call from Dave and he says, Doug, details to follow, but long story short, Osborne's out. You're the new Chancellor. Be in my office at nine o'clock in the morning. What would you do then? I would, I would say, yeah, April Fools, yeah, funny one. <laughs> um, no, it's not going to happen. But you know, if I if I if I was Chancellor, um, I would do a series of things dramatically. Um, I I think I would sack the Monetary Policy Committee, um, and I would do that. Um, and the Governor of the Bank of England, and I would do that for the symbolism to show people that. Um, you know, the days of testing monetary and fiscal stimulus um, to destruction are over. Um, and, you know, um, the, the Treasury accountable to Parliament was going to make a series of decisions. I would stop quantitative easing. I would um, tackle banking reform um, properly. It's not been done. And the way I would do that is I would um, create a, 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 a a legal requirement that whenever anyone opens a bank account, they need to specify whether the money they're putting into the bank account is a loan or a deposit. In other words, uh, I would allow a sort of organic uh, check and constraint upon fractional reserve banking. Uh, a bank that was well run, um, obviously more people would be willing to take the box saying that that money was a, a loan. Um, a badly run bank, um, more people would tick the box saying it was a deposit, and so its reserve ratio would be automatically higher. I think if you did that, if you had that sort of um, organic uh, um, uh, approach to, to banking reform, um, you would constrain the worst excesses of, of fractional reserve banking. I would um, end the, 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 the um, practice of central bankers of, of, of sluicing cheap credit at, at banks, and I would prepare to allow several banks to go under. I think you know the era of financial service giantism is coming to an end. The future for banks lies in, in niche, small um, players. Um, and I would I would prepare for um, a world where there were uh, fewer big corporate banks and, and smaller players. Um, I would um, be prepared to, to watch some of the giants go to the wall. 
I would stop using taxpayer money to subsidize uh, the, 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 the bankers. Um, state-subsidized banking has been as disastrous for this country as, as state-subsidized anything. Um, I would have a supply-side revolution. I would remove a lot of the restrictive practices on um, the labor market that are propping up non-wage labor costs that are consigning millions of people to uh, a, a life of marginal or, or, or non-employment. Um, I would remove many of the corporatist regulations that allow well, a, a lot of uh, uh, economic activity in this country to be dominated by corporatism. Uh, for example, in the energy sector, uh, there are regulations in place that in effect prevent up, insurgent uh, players um, coming in and providing us with cheap shale gas. Uh, we've got record high energy prices, but billions of, pounds, uh, billions of cubic feet of, of shale gas trapped in the ground beneath us. I would allow entrepreneurs and wealth creators free reign to create wealth. Um, I would um, um, repeal um, and withdraw from um, all tariffs. Um, I would um, completely open up, up trade in this country. Um, and I think if you did that, if you if you created um, a, a country with, um, oh, incidentally, things like corporation tax, I would I would move away from. I would radically reform the tax system. I think basically you 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 need two types of tax. Um, you, you need basically taxes on on consumption um, and taxes on on property. Um, and you know, taxes should be a variant of, of those. Um, if you're going to retain an income tax, then I think it should be a flat rate for everything. And whether the income is earned by a private individual or a company, uh, it, it should be the same rate. Yeah, and I think if you started to do that, if you started to have a very simplified tax system, a flat tax system, removing many of the restrictive practices to wealth creators, something quite extraordinary would happen. I think you would suddenly see wealth created. And, um, you know, um, I think once you did that, um, we would actually, you know, discover that this island is in a very good place to prosper. Although we're stuck in uh, an economic downturn, um, actually look outside the West and there's a huge network of, of, of prosperity. There are tens of millions of people in Africa and South America and South Asia every year being drawn into this global network of specialization and exchange. The economies in Turkey, uh, uh, Southern India, uh, sorry, Southern Asia, India, uh, Africa are growing very fast. We, we could be part of that if we would only remove these uh, uh, Western-made barriers to wealth creation. Well, Douglas, just to, uh, uh, as we move to a close, um, I find, I mean, the, the end of politics and the birth of iDemocracy, once again, that's your new book, many stimulating ideas in there about the potential for this country and, and everywhere in the world, really, that you've described. But I do have genuine concerns, and I don't mean to sound pessimistic, that if this government gravy train finally hits the buffers, I have concerns about financial and social repression. Um, we see protests now being put down in quite draconian ways. The, the state is undoubtedly more authoritarian than it was 10, 20 years ago. Surveillance is on the increase. Lots of concerns about generally big government's response to what's happening, and it's not going to want to quietly dwindle away, and it, that does concern me. I understand your concerns, but I, I wouldn't overstate them. I mean, I think one of the extraordinary things about the Internet is it creates a, a sort of collective conscience as, as to what is and what isn't acceptable. And, you know, 
you may say that the state is more authoritarian. I, I wonder if that's true. Could it perhaps be that the state has always been quite authoritarian? But now that every citizen has a phone with a camera on them, um, we, we begin to see where it's misbehaving in a way that would have been unthinkable a generation ago. So yeah, I, I, I think we need to be on our guard, but I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I think you know, we're moving into an age where the citizen consumer will have the political power. You know, in, the, in the 20th century, politics in, in Britain and throughout many Western countries was basically a story of, of organized labor and organized labor mobilizing and then uh, gaining power and using the state apparatus for its ends. I think the defining feature of, of, of the 21st century will be the rise not of organized labor as a political force, but of the citizen consumer. And the citizen consumer will be pretty intolerant of uh, state arbitrary rule and uh, authoritarianism. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm an optimist. I, I think that um, the, the, the state is beginning to recognize that, you know, um, there is a constituent out there that is not just someone to be patronized every five years when an election comes around. There's a constituent out there called the citizen, and the citizen is on your back all the time, and um, the citizen is king. And I, 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 I'm, I'm optimistic. I think government is going to get smaller, better, more competent, and um, people who work for government will become ever more appreciative of, of, of personal freedom and, and liberty. Um, you know, there have been some cases pretty recently of, uh, highlighted of state officials being incredibly high-handed and arbitrary. I, I suspect state officials have always been high-handed and arbitrary, but thanks to the internet and the democratization of comment brought about by the internet, we can see when they're being arbitrary, and you know, that means they will eventually have to fall into line. We're either going to crash or crash through. Douglas Carswell, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, that's it for another week. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website, legalizefreedom.com. That's legalize-freedom.com. Legalize with an S or a Z. There you'll find an archive of programs on many similar and equally fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com.